praise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I first want to extend condolences on behalf of the congregation to Diana, Chris, and of course uh, Robert and Talisha. Um, our hearts are with you. Our prayers are for you. Very shortly here we will be reading of Christ who holds the church in his hand. And as I was preparing that passage, this passage of scripture this week, I was reminded that the hand in which Christ holds the church is a nail-pierced hand. And the hand in which our Lord Jesus Christ is holding your precious Denise is a nail-pierced hand. His love for her is manifested in a way that we will not know on this side of eternity, but she is enjoying that right now. Please know and understand, this congregation loves you and your family this congregation desires nothing more than to see the love of Christ manifested even in this situation. Well, with that in mind, I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles, please, and turn to Revelation chapter 2, the second chapter of the book of Revelation. Uh, we will take a look again at our Lord's letter to the church at Ephesus. Uh, we considered this passage of Scripture to some extent uh, a couple of weeks ago. We looked at, the, uh, at what we saw was the commendation that our Lord Jesus Christ gave uh, to this church. This church in Ephesus was a commendable church. Uh, you might remember that there were many, many things that our Lord Jesus Christ was able to speak concerning the faithfulness that they had shown over and over again. And so what I want to do is I want to come back to this passage of Scripture because as we were kind of setting forth all the commendable things, there were so many that it took up one sermon just to look at the things that were commendable. Uh, what we want to do here today now is we want to take a look at the counsel that Christ gives to the church, the counsel that Christ gives. And the reason why we're doing that is because this church, while it had many things going for it, did suffer from a very severe flaw, and we want to take a look at that. So let's take our Bibles, Ephesians, I'm sorry, uh, Revelation chapter 2, and we'll read uh, verses uh, 1 through 7. Revelation, the second chapter, verses 1 through 7. Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them to be liars, and hast borne and hast patience for my name's sake, and hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, <clears throat> and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Well, as I said before, we're going to take a look at this passage of Scripture, primarily by way of the counsel that Christ gives to this church. As we've read through this passage of Scripture, I hope that you've seen how our Lord is handling the church here, how our Lord is addressing the church. He's bringing to the church's memory this idea of who He is first and foremost. And I think this is very significant for us to see. Again, in that opening verse, again, the one who holds the churches, uh, the angels in, in, in his hand, and the one who walks among the churches, this is a very encouraging thing. Because as I said just a few moments ago, 
When our Lord Jesus Christ holds the angels of the churches in his hands, the hand that he holds them in is a nail-pierced hand. It reminds us very, very quickly that our Lord Jesus Christ gave himself on behalf of the church. The Lord Jesus Christ, as he walks among the churches, he does this in a way where he examines, he commends, and he corrects when necessary. But even as he walks through the churches, those feet that he walks with are nail-pierced feet. You see, over and over again, we are reminded of the great price that Jesus Christ paid for his church, the great price that Jesus Christ paid for you. And so this is how Christ sets himself forth before this congregation. <clears throat> the other thing that we did uh, the last time we were looking at this passage of Scripture, we laid out the many ways in which Christ commended the church. Do you remember that there were nine things for which they were commended? Nine things that our Lord Jesus Christ took note of. And this is very, very interesting. Because we see that our Lord Jesus Christ is always quick to note those things which are commendable in the life of his church. Our Lord Jesus Christ is quick to note those things that are commendable in the life of his people. And while our Lord Jesus Christ must correct, and while our Lord Jesus Christ will give counsel on how to be corrected, he will not overlook those things which are commendable. And thank God for this church at Ephesus that it was such a commendable church. Oh, that we would be something like this church at Ephesus. Yes, correction will be needed, but let's not overlook the things that they were commended for. These things that they were commended for, again, were exemplary. There they were, faithful to Christ by way of their doctrinal stand. There they were, again, very jealous for the, uh, for the orthodoxy of the Christian faith. There they were, laboring intensely for the cause of Christ. These things, as I said before, were very, very commendable. And it would be a blessing to this church. It would be... <clears throat> It would, it would be to the, uh, uh, to the benefit of this church if we incorporated more and more of those things in the life of our little congregation as well. And I hope that we would. I hope that we would be faithful for the cause of Christ. But there are other things that we see here that our Lord, as he begins to, to deal in this passage of Scripture, and as we begin to see the counsel that he gives, he counsels this church because there was some serious defect. And the defect was not so much a defect of action, it wasn't even a defect of what we might say, their theology. The defect was much more serious than that. It was a defect that struck at the most important thing. And that was the fact that this good congregation had somehow, in some way, and listen to me carefully, somehow, in some way, did not lose their first love, but rather they left their first love. I believe the, I believe the ESV says they abandoned their first love. And this is worth noting. We can understand and we're going to take some time to, to consider the question, how is it that somebody can either lose or abandon their first love? And we'll give some explanation of this. But I want you to see first and foremost that our Lord Jesus Christ notes a very serious flaw in the, in the life of this congregation. Many things commendable, yes. Oh, but that one thing that is necessary, the heart. You see, the love and affection for Christ, he notices when our affections are warm. He notices when our love is at its high point, and he notices again when there, are, when, there are, when there is a diminishing of that love. And all that leads me to what I would set before you as the primary point that I want to develop here today. And the primary point is this. Christ is always calling his church to love him in the highest degree. Christ is always calling his church to love him in the highest degree. Yes, you and I may have measures of love for Christ, but is our love at its highest degree? 
Yes, you and I may be able to look back by way of what it was in the first days, but what about our love now? I would even suggest to you, when our Lord Jesus Christ says you have left your you have, uh, you have, uh, uh, you have uh, left your first love, that there are two ways in which we should understand the idea of first love. We should understand it by way of its initial uh, uh, experience. The, all the heights of, uh, of emotion that we experienced when we knew our sins were forgiven, but we should also understand it by way of priority, that Christ is to be the first love of all loves, Amen. and there is to be no love that excels our love for Christ. And so again, Christ is calling us to this. Christ is always calling his church to love him to the highest degree, and he gives counsel on how we may do this. We're going to see this in the passage of Scripture. That's why, as I said before, Christ is giving counsel in this passage here. And he will counsel his church on how the church might love him to the highest degree. And it's very interesting to see the way he will proceed. He will proceed in basically four lines, I might say. He will proceed, number one, by, uh, by giving instruction. And the instruction will be kind of very quick. Uh, remember, uh, uh, repent, and do the first works. That's the instruction that Christ gives. Secondly, he will, he will counsel by way of warning. And the warning that he gives is a very serious warning. Repent or I will take thy candlestick from thee. We're going to see that this is, this is, if not the most severe, it is among the most severe uh, judgments that Christ can bring upon a church to remove the candlestick. Thirdly, we're going to see that he, that he, that, that, that he, he, he counsels us by way of exhortation. He that has an ear to hear. And it's interesting because while our Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to the church at Ephesus, the, the, the congregation as a whole, he says to each and every individual believer, he or she that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. It's an exhortation. And so Christ preaches to the church, again, by way of warning, instruction. Christ preaches to the church by way of exhortation. But the last thing our Lord Jesus Christ will do in order to elevate our love for Christ, that it might not only be what it was in its initial stages, but that it might be, that it might have a, a continuing priority above all other loves, he will incentivize our love by saying, he that overcomes shall eat of the tree of life. Our Lord incentivizes love for him, you see. Our Lord will not, again, receive your love without giving back in an abundance what you have first given to him. He will first give to you by way of grace. And then when you respond in obedience, he will give, he will give again. And so in this passage of scripture, we have Christ's counsel to his church. And it is a counsel that is worth noting. Well, as I said before, if we look here in, the, in this passage of scripture, we see again in verses 2 and following uh, again, well, let's, let's, look, let's look at verse 1 because I want to bring this point out to you again. Uh, verse 1 of uh, chapter 2. Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Can I give you a little kind of, just a little, I don't want to say insight because it's not necessarily an insight, but this past week I was looking at this passage of scripture and I was reading verse 1. And for whatever reason, I did this. I says, Christ is holding the, the seven angels, those seven messengers, those, those seven men who have responsibility in the congregation to Christ. And I was looking at my hand and I thought to myself, wait a minute, Christ's hand is a nail-pierced hand. 
And, and, the, and, and, and the hand that he holds, the angels of the church, is a nail-pierced hand. And it reminds us of the love that Christ has for his church, does it not? And I went on to go to think of, of Christ walking among the churches, walking among the candlesticks, examining and looking and seeing what needs to be done. And those feet are nail-pierced feet. I can't say it enough. Do you understand? Do you see this Christ who gave himself for the church, who loves you? And so there is our Lord Jesus Christ. And oh, he did find much to commend this church. You might remember of the nine things that we said, we broke them down into four categories. They were doctrinally on the mark. There they were. They were trying those who said they were apostles and found them to be liars. Doctrinally, they were, if I can say it this way, they were on their game. They knew what it was to be doctrinally accurate. Ethically, they were doing all that Christ called them to do. They were, they were hating that which was evil. They were, they, they were setting aside, again, any kind of teaching that, that would bring moral or spiritual corruption. That was that whole thing with the, with the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans. You might know, you might remember, some of your study Bibles will tell you these things, that this group, while it's somewhat hard to kind of pin down exactly who they were, they were marked by basically two things. They, they, number one, they, they had this view of the, of the Christian life that allowed for such laxity that there were no moral standards. Much by way of immorality crept into the church because of the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And I would say to you, I would suggest to you, there's much that creeps in by way of immorality in the church today by way of teaching that goes on, where, where the world's acceptance of moral standards becomes the standard of the church of Jesus Christ. This is abominable. It should not happen. The church of Jesus Christ, under the, under the authority of the word of God, that's what sets forth the moral standard that we live by. And so, so many churches are, 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 are seeing, we're seeing great defections uh, in, in this regard, where the morals of society become the morals of the church. This should not be. It is a sad, it, listen, I, I, we, we, I have to say this, it is a sad thing, it, 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 is, it, it, is, it is an abominable mark against a professing church to, 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 to not only ordain or marry a, a practicing homosexuals and lesbian, lesbians, this is a blight on the church. And so again, this type of teaching that allows for this in the church should be spoken against. Our Lord Jesus Christ commends this church for taking that stand. It's an amazing thing. And like I said a few weeks ago, Christ commends the church for what society would condemn it for. Do you understand? Take a biblical stand for, for, for sexual ethics in our day, and you'll at least be looked down on. In some cases, you'll be attacked. But our Lord Jesus Christ commends these ones. He says, again, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine some churches saying that there are things, even right now, that Jesus Christ hates? There are. We read bumper stickers that tell us otherwise, don't we? But our Lord Jesus Christ makes it very clear here. And so again, they, were, they, they had it right doctrinally. They had it right ethically. Practically, they were involved in great works of labor and patience and love. We see this in verse 2. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and thou hast labored and not fainted. On a practical level, this church was exemplary. There they were, busy about the things of Christ. There they were, again, doing the things that Christ called them for, called them to. And then even lastly, I think this is very interesting, this church, even though it had a serious defect by way of its losing of its, and, and leaving its love for Christ, still whatever it did, it did in the name of Christ. Look there in verse 3. Again, you have done all this for my name's sake. And so there was much, as I said before, that was commendable. And what this reminds us of is this. 
is that our Lord, as I said before, is always observing and willing to mark those things that are commendable in a church. And while he may have to bring against the church a serious charge, he will not overlook those things that the church is doing that are commendable. And we see that happening here in this passage of Scripture. And when he will not let this, when, what, what, what he will not let this Ephesian church be ignorant of is the fact that he was aware that their love had waned, that they had somehow in some way, inexplicable to us, left off, abandoned their first love. We have to wonder if they knew it. We have to wonder if they were aware of it. And one, one side of us wants to say, well, how could you not know when your first love is waning? And maybe they knew that their love was waning, but maybe they thought that it wasn't that big of a deal or that there was, uh, again, that, there was, uh, that it wasn't something that would be really called out for. But here is our Lord Jesus Christ calling them out on this. And it brings us to what is really the point of this epistle that is, that is given to the church at Ephesus. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. This is Christ's counsel to the church. He had given everything commendable, and now he counsels them. And how does he counsel them? He says this, Remember from whence thou art fallen. Do you know any loss of love for Christ from its highest degree is a serious fall? You've fallen from this, he says. This is not something, again, that's just inadvertent, something that can be easily passed over. No, there is a fall involved here. Verse 5, again, Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. In fact, we can say, therefore, that verse 5 really constitutes the essential message that Christ has to this church at Ephesus. Much by way of commendation, but this one thing must be noted, that they had lost, they had abandoned their first love, and it was that that Christ was calling them to repent of. Well, as I said before, the loss of the first love is, is no small infraction. And as a matter of fact, Christ even calls upon this church to repent of that. What was this first love that this church had? How would we understand it? And I think most of us, whenever we think about the first love, this passage of Scripture, we think, nothing wrong with this, we think of all the excitement that was generated when we were first saved. I'm going to say a couple of things here. Do you remember those days? Do you remember when the awareness of your sins being forgiven was fresh in your mind? Do you remember what it was to maybe on the day before to be laboring under the reality that you stood before God with all the weight of your sin upon you? And if you were to stand in the presence of God in that moment, all would be lost. And then somehow, someway, the gospel came to you. Maybe it was something that you remembered from your childhood. Maybe it was a friend that spoke to you. Maybe it was something on the radio. Maybe it was something on the TV. Maybe it was, a, maybe it was in, a, in a service like this. A man was preaching the word of God, setting forth the gospel. And you realize, finally, that all of this talk about Jesus dying for sinners had to do with you. And if nothing, if nothing else, you were the sinner that Christ died for. Oh, do you remember those times? They were sweet times. Well, let me say this. And I say this with care and caution. Because I do know that there is a reality where there are individuals who can honestly say before us, you know, I don't know when I first ever trusted Christ. I really don't know. But I know I'm trusting him now. I don't know when it was, when, when it all finally dawned on me. 
But I know that one day, just in the process of time, there was a sense in which this love for Christ and this faith in Christ was something that I identified with above all things. And if that's your state, if that's your condition, let me say this. Make sure that that reality is in no way undermined by the fact that You've never come to realize just how serious your condition was before a holy God, and yet this holy God was merciful to you. You see, again, we must all... You see, he says to this church, he, he calls the church to be aware of sin and to repent of sin, and we must never tire of hearing that even in the church of Christ itself. And so, again, this first love. Well, what was the first love of this, of this Ephesian church? As I said before, we normally go to the the initial experiences of being saved. Nothing wrong with that. I would, I would direct you to that. I would say again, I would even ask you to, to think back on the, those days when, when Christ was very, very sweet. I remember it. I was saved when I was in the service. And it was something, um, I was in the Navy, I was on the ship, and there was something of like a little revival going on. I think uh, out of a crew of about maybe 300 guys, I think like within a short span there may have been eight guys saved. It was it was it was strange. It was neat, you know. Strange from from an unconverted standpoint. Neat from a converted standpoint. And it was just a, it was just an encouraging thing to see uh, men coming to faith in Christ. And so again, when we talk about this first love, we see all those emotional elements. But I want to suggest something else to you here in a way to help us to understand this first love. If we were to go back in the book of Acts to Acts chapter nineteen, we would find when the gospel first came to the city of Ephesus. And it is a very exciting chapter, that 19th chapter of the book of Acts. Why don't you take your Bible and go there? And uh, we'll, we'll see if we can point a few things out to you. I won't be reading really anything here, but I want to point a few things out to you. There are probably four high water marks in this chapter that really constitute for us what the first love of the Ephesian church looked like. Four, as I said, high water marks. Four things to really take note of. So if you're there in Acts chapter 19, I, I would direct you first to verses 1 through 7. And in verses 1 through 7, what I want you to see is that one of the things that marked the initial faith and the initial love of this Ephesian church was a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That should warm your heart, brothers and sisters. It should warm your heart that the Spirit of God, again, was outpoured in this great way. And I'm saying to you so much by way of the work, the ongoing work of the Spirit of God, so much by way of our affections for Christ is all bound up with that continuing work of the Spirit of God. But there it was, there, there the Spirit of God was being poured out. And again, there are a number of things that can be said as to the, the timing of, the, of that in Acts chapter 19, how the gospel is advancing through the book of Acts. Much can be said there, but I just want you to see that in, the, in its beginning days, this church had on its mark, we might say, this great outpouring of the Spirit of God. Oh, that there would be more of the Spirit of God poured out upon this church in our day. The second thing I want you to see and understand in verses 8 through 12, that there was much spiritual power in the preaching of the Apostle Paul, so much so that even there were extraordinary miracles present. This is a wonderful thing to see. There was Paul preaching, and there was God acting. There was God, there was Paul preaching, and there were men and women being saved. Again, this, this, this Ephesian church had much of these great spiritual experiences there. The third thing I would call you to is in verses 13 through 20 where we have the word of God prevailing over demonic powers. 
There were those seven sons of Sceva there in that passage of scripture. They were trying to, again, they were trying to cast out demons. And the demon talks back to them and basically says, who are you? Paul, I know. Jesus, I know. But who are you? And the demon ran him out of town, basically. Oh, but then you see later on there, I think it's in verse, uh, I think it's in verse 20, how that the word of God prevailed, prevailed mightily. Oh, you see this preaching of the apostle and all this spiritual excitement. And we might even say that it was a form of spiritual warfare that was going on. And the gospel was being victorious in that moment. The fourth thing that I would draw your attention to is in verses 21 through 41. And here we see again the gospel advancing. Now, not so much against the backdrop of, the, of, 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 of demonic activity. Now it is advancing against the backdrop of economic and political powers that would oppose the gospel. But the gospel went on. Must have been an exciting time to be in Ephesus in that day. Would it not? To see the gospel being preached with such power. To see the spirit of God poured out in such a mighty way. To see again spiritual victories being won. Not only in the spiritual realm we might say. But even in the economic and political realm as well. Great things were being done. And I would say to you that. Whenever we talk about this. The first love of the Ephesian church. We have to incorporate this. Oh, what kind of excitement would there be in this little congregation if these things were manifested? The great outpouring of the Spirit of God. Now, you know my position on, on the gift of tongues. I don't believe that the gift of tongues is for today, but I believe that the pouring out of the Spirit of God is for today. I believe that we need more and more of the Spirit of God. Oh, that the Word of God would be preached in such a way that it would prevail mightily. Oh, that economic and political powers would not be able to stand against the going forth of the gospel from this place. Oh, what a wonderful thing it would be. And, 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 and there would be much excitement engendered within us. What would there not be? We would be able to look back on those days. If those days were these days, in 20 years, we would look back and say, oh, wasn't it a wonderful time? Oh, it was great to be in Nosset back then, wasn't it? And so again, I think that in a very real way that this is what the Ephesian church had by way of its first love. Yes, all the initial excitement. Yes, all the initial affections. But God was working I find it very interesting, and I have to admit that I very rarely quote the, uh, from Billy Graham, but I think Billy Graham had something here that I want you to hear. He said this concerning the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, this letter to the Ephesus and, and, and the abandoning of their first love. He says, uh, he says, what was the church's first love for God? He says, for, for, each, for each other as people, and we're going to see that that, is, that, is, that does have to be included in the first love. And one of the things that we would have to say is that if we're going to understand what, what the Spirit of God through and, and what the Spirit of God is giving John to write or what, what Christ is giving John to write here, we would have to incorporate uh, some of the things that we know that John emphasizes in his, in his first epistle. And what does John emphasize in his first epistle? It's love for one another. So when, when Billy Graham makes this point, what was the church's first love? Uh, obviously for each other as, as individuals, for the poor and the oppressed, yes. But, but he goes on to say this. He says, but perhaps I think that primarily what the church had left was a love for men's souls. Now, I say this with a little bit of caution because I do think that primarily what we're seeing here is the love for Christ. But if you notice there in Acts 17, how much of that activity took place outside of the walls of the church? It was the engagement of the gospel with the culture of the day. And that's what marked their love for Christ. 
And so as I said before, I don't often uh, quote Billy Grammer, but he brings something out here that I don't want us to lose sight of. This idea that our love for Christ is marked in very many ways by our evangelistic efforts. Oh, that we would be an evangelistic church, that, that I, as your pastor, would, would, would lead you in these evangelistic efforts. So happy about the ladies' tea meeting, which is kind of a, a designed to be evangelistic in part. These things are great. Oh, that we would have more of these things. And so here we see, again, that, the, that this first love that the, that the Ephesian church was losing uh, and was abandoning, I think in some way, shape, or form, while it really centers on the person of Christ, has to do as well with our love for one another, but also with our love for the lost. Oh, that God would work more and more of that in our lives. As I said before, this love is a, is a love that, uh, that our Lord Jesus Christ uh, expects of us. Another way in which I think we can understand this first love is to look at how we see individuals loving Christ, especially in the Gospels, but also in the, in, in, in the book of Acts as well. And in the Gospels, we see at least two examples of what initial love for Christ looks like. Do you remember the woman, uh, the sinning woman, uh, the adulterous woman, who at the house of the Pharisee anointed the feet of Jesus? You remember that whole episode? Could you imagine, what, what would you think if that took place? I hate to say it, me being who I am, I would be somewhat taken aback by it. I'd be thinking, what is going on here? But this woman was doing that because she loved Christ. And isn't that what Christ notices? There in Luke chapter 7, verses 43 through 50, Christ says this to the Pharisee, who, 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 who sadly like me, or, or, or me sadly like that Pharisee, is, is kind of bewildered by this. And he goes on to say this, to the Pharisee, he says, My head you did not anoint with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee that her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he saith unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they sat at meat with him, and they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgives sins also? And he said unto the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. I want you to see a number of things here. Number one, I want you to see how Christ saw her love as an act of her faith. She, did, she, 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 she showed this kindness and this affection for Christ by way of the expression of the faith that she had. And what we're seeing here is that first love, this first love, exemplifies itself by way of love and devotion. And so that your first love as a Christian and my first love as a Christian and our, prior, and our primary love should be a love of devotion and affection for Jesus Christ. Amen. This woman, again, she loved much and she showed much of that love by way of her actions. We see another example of this initial love in, in the, gospels, uh, in, in the Gospel of, of Luke uh, once again. Here we see it uh, in Luke chapter 8, the next chapter. And here we have now, not the sinning woman, here we have that, that strange man uh, who was possessed by many demons and was, and was kept in shackles and chains. This guy was such a menace to society, they had to lock him up. The guy, was, uh, he, was, he was such a menace, he couldn't roam free. And again, you see our Lord Jesus Christ comes to him. And our Lord Jesus Christ delivers him from all this demonic power. Our Lord Jesus Christ exhibits a great act of mercy and kindness toward him. And this man, again, obviously comes to, comes to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I want you to see by way of his initial love for Christ, what does he want? He wants to go with Jesus. Jesus, again, gets in the boat and gets ready to go on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And what's this man say? Oh, let me come with you. And it's interesting what our Lord does. He says, no. He says, don't come with me. He says, you go back. 
and you tell your family and your friends the great things that God has done for you. It's something like evangelism, isn't it? You see how the first love has an evangelistic zeal to it? First love has, a, has, has, devotion, has, has devotion and affection attached to it? The third way we see this kind of first love is, is again found in the book of Acts. Very well-known passage of Scripture, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. You remember that passage of Scripture? There was the early church gathering. They were, giving, uh, they, were, they were giving attention to the apostles' doctrine. They were meeting for prayer. They were breaking bread and fellowship. Everything that we might say what church life looks like, these new Christians were very zealous to be a part of. And I would suggest to you, I would encourage you, that your love for Christ is seen in your attendance upon the place of worship and the time of worship. You know, again, this, these ideas that you, you, you might think back to when you were first saved. And, and, and maybe, maybe you were first saved, and, and maybe the man who led you to Christ was, a, was maybe your first pastor. And again, you just had an excitement to hear what this man had to say. You couldn't wait till that man opened up the Word of God. You couldn't wait to be with the people of God. You couldn't wait for a Lord's Day like this where, where the Lord's table would be open up for all the Lord's people to come into fellowship together. Amen. You see, I'm saying to you that this initial love, what did it look like? Yes, devotion and affection. Yes, evangelistic zeal. But also, again, a desire to be with the people of God and in the place of worship on the day of worship. Amen. I want to encourage you to that, brothers and sisters. I'm going to encourage you to come to the house of worship. I want to encourage you to be present when the Word of God is open. I want to encourage you to be present when the ordinances are, are rightly, are, are, are rightly uh, uh, given. I want to encourage you, again, to the fellowship of the people of God. You see, this is what initial love looks like. And when that love is lacking, our Lord Jesus Christ notices it. And so, so much of this initial love, while it is specifically focused on the person of Christ, it fills out in the other categories, doesn't it? And that's what we're seeing here. Well, the next thing we have to ask ourselves is what contributed to this loss? Sadly, and I have to admit, I was caught short on this passage of Scripture because I was operating under the impression that they lost the first love. It was one of those things like in the book of Hebrews, you know, you let the thing slip. The picture there is like letting a ring slip off your finger. And that's kind of the way I was handling this. And then one individual made the point that it, it wasn't something that they inadvertently lost. They left. They abandoned their first love. And we ask ourselves the question, what could have caused that? What could have caused all that devotion of that woman, all of that evangelistic zeal of that man that was delivered, all of that excitement to come and to gather with the people of God, what could have caused all of that to be abandoned? And I think the scripture gives us answers to this as well. And the first thing that I would say to you is this, the first passage that I would suggest that you go to is in Matthew chapter 12, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 24, verse 12. And you know the passage of scripture. There is Jesus, again, on that great sermon where he's speaking about uh, his coming again in glory. And he says this in Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Why does our love diminish? It's because of the increase of sin. Now, let me say two things. It's because of the increase of sin in general, but it's because of the allowance of sin in particular. Sin always dampens our love for God and for Christ. The New Living Translation puts it this way. Again, Jesus speaking prophetically. He says, sin will be rampant everywhere, and the love of many will grow cold. Does it grieve you? Are you surprised by it? 
The longer we live, the more we just seem to be, maybe not, maybe we're not at ease with the sin of our day. But I dare say there's hardly one of us with gray hair in here who wouldn't say, I can't believe where we're at right now. And are we, what's our response to that? Are we, are we pained by that? Are we more zealous for the love of Christ in this, in, in, in this day? You see, when sin increases, when iniquity abounds, it has a deadening effect on our love for Christ. I think, and I speak for myself as much as, I think many of us will be embarrassed by our entertainment choices when we stand before Christ. May God give us grace. May God give us grace. So the increase of sin dampens and deadens our love for Christ. We see this in other places as well. Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, he says this, For men shall be lovers of their own selves. You've heard it, I heard it. Got to love yourself before you can love anyone else. Got to have love for yourself. Our Lord Jesus Christ says, listen, I'm your first love, first by way of its initial expression and first by way of priority. Do you and I, do we love Christ above all loves? And if we love self above Christ, you see, this is going to deaden our love. And so we have to be careful of these things that we know and we understand by way of our self-assessment and by way of preservation and all these things. We get all that. Oh, but to have a love of self that eclipses a love for God? Oh, I have somewhat against thee, Jesus would say. In that same context, Paul says this to Timothy, that men shall be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. You see, sin, sin sucks the life out of, out of, your, out of, out of your spiritual well-being. Yeah. And so again, we have the increase of sin that causes a, a loss of love. We have, we, have, we have personal sins that cause a loss of love for Christ. There's the love of the world that causes a loss of love for Christ. Love not the world, 1 John 2, 15, either the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. They're incompatible. And so when we ask this question, what caused this church to lose its first love? Oh, these things you see, these things of sin have to be front and center when we consider this. So that's the situation. We have, again, the nature of their first love. We have examples of that first love. We have the question as to how that first love can be lost. We've given that. Now we quickly have to get to Christ's actual counsel to the church. And his counsel, as I said before, we might say it's fourfold. His counsel comes in the form of instruction. His counsel comes in the form of warning. His counsel comes in the form of exhortation. And his counsel comes in the form of, uh, of incentive. Let's take a look at each of these things. <clears throat> First of all, his counsel consists in instruction. And the instruction here is threefold. There we see it there in, uh, in, in, uh, in, in, verse, uh, in verse 5. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. That's the counsel that Christ gives. It's threefold. Number one, he says remember. Number two, he says repent. And number three, he says do the first works. So many things can be said here. 
Number one, I would say this. Again, see here how Christ calls the church to repent of its loss of love, of its abandonment of love. Whenever our love for Christ is diminished, it's no small thing. It's something that we must repent of. And Christ is calling us to that. Remember from what you are falling and repent. But this idea of remembering becomes very important. There are so many times, you, you, I'm sure all of you know this, you're familiar enough with the scripture, how many times the, 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 the command to remember is set before us. We're going to come to this table, and what are we going to do? We're going to remember the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle Peter will be writing, and what does he say? He says, it's not burdensome for me to write these things over and over again and put them in remembrance. And here we see again the words of our Lord Jesus Christ specifically calling us to remember. So remember, as I said before, that initial love. Remember again the, the, the need of the, pri the priority of that love. Remember the evangelistic zeal. Remember the, uh, the devotion. Remembering the joy of gathering. You remember these things and repent. Whatever is keeping you, me, us from any of these things, let's repent of these things. I hope you never tire of hearing of the command to repent even within the church of Jesus Christ. Repentance, again, what is it? You know, it is, fundamentally it's this. It's a, it's a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Much more could be said. But that's essentially what it is. It may oftentimes be accompanied by great uh, emotional grief and, and great emotional uh, uh, kind of uh, weight upon us. But that in and of itself is not, uh, is not repentance. Repentance has to do with the mind of the believer or the mind of the un unbeliever because repentance works to the unbeliever and to the believer as well. To the unbeliever, that individual is confronted with the gospel, as we said earlier. He or she comes to understand that he or she stands guilty before God. And he makes this fundamental change. And this change isn't brought out by an act of his own will or ability. It's a change that's spiritually worked within him by way of the Spirit of God. God granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. You see, it's a gift. And each one of these things, although Christ will press these things upon his church in no uncertain terms... He will say to the church, you must remember, you must repent, you must do the first works. I say this with great caution, but he doesn't say, look, I say this with great caution. He doesn't say, just wait for the Holy Spirit to do this in you. He doesn't say that, does he? Now don't misunderstand me. Remembering in a spiritual way, repenting unto salvation and, and the return to Christ, and doing the first works can only be done by way of the power of the Spirit of God within you. Philippians 2.13, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both the will and the do. And so we don't just sit by and say, well, I'm, I'm waiting. I, I know you called me to, to repent. I'm waiting on you to give me. No, he calls you to that. He presses that upon you in no uncertain terms. For me to fail to mention that but to do it would, be, would be to do an injustice to the text. Now again, we have to put all of this under what we understand by way of the ongoing work of God and the Spirit of God within us. Like Paul says to the, to the Galatians, are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? You're going to continue in the flesh. We understand that that's not what we're being called to here. But you are enlisted in this very work that God is working within you. And so here you and I are, hopefully being stirred, hopefully thinking back on the, fir on the first love, hopefully remembering again everything it was by way of zeal, hopefully being aware now that this love for Christ must exceed all other loves. Where do you think the awareness of that came from? By a man up here speaking by you just determining in your heart. It's the work of the Spirit of God. 
And that's why Christ will say here, he that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church as you see. And this moves us now from instruction to, to, to exhortation. And I'm getting my, my, my outline a little bit out of order, but I'm going to do it here. Here's this exhortation now. Everything that Christ commands us to do here can only be done in and through the power of the Spirit. But Christ is commanding us to hear the Spirit. You see, this is a, this, in, in one sense, this is exactly what our Lord uh, said in, 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 in the gospel account um, when, when he spoke uh, uh, to those who were hearing him. He said the same thing. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. You see, there is a hearing audibly and a hearing spiritually. There is a hearing of the word with the physical ear, but there is a hearing of the word when the Spirit of God opens the heart like he did to Lydia there in the preaching of Paul in Acts 16. There is again uh, what, the, what, the, what the psalmist writes in Psalm 40. It's ultimately spoken of the Lord Jesus Christ, but, but uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the psalmist had it in reference to himself how that God opened his ears to hear. Oh, that God would open our ears. That the word of God would pierce. That the word of God would be effective. And so again, this exhortation. The other thing that he does here is he gives a warning, and it's a severe warning. Remember and repent and do the first works, or else I will come and take thy candlestick from thee. Now, let me say a couple of things about this. You remember I said before when we were dealing with this, the candlestick the candlestick itself is not that which illumines. The candlestick is that which holds that which illumines. And we might say this, that the candlestick is the church. We understand that from verse 1 and, and at the end of uh, chapter 1 there. We understand that the candlestick is the church, but what the candlestick holds is the light of the gospel and the light of Christ to a dying world. And I venture to say, that before a candlestick is removed, the candle is first extinguished. And isn't it a sad thing that there are many candlesticks in our day that have no lamp of the gospel upon them? They are churches in name only. They are churches on the outside. I remember I was saying to somebody, it was a while back that, you know, the Unitarian churches... And, I, and, and you don't see them referred to as uni, Unitarian churches so much or universal You're referred to as societies, univer, you know, universal, uh, uh, Unitarian Universalist society. And I thought to myself, well, at least I'm not calling them churches anymore because they ceased being a church a long time ago. And let me say this. This warning extends not to just churches out there. This warning extends to this church. And if this church ever loses the light of the gospel... If this church ever experiences a diminishing of love for Christ, its candlestick will be removed. We may go on for generations as a candlestick with no, can with no light on it, but the time will come when Christ will remove the candlestick. And even that thought, a candlestick that remains maybe for generations with no light, how patient is Christ to call his church back? How ready is Christ again to fill a church with his spirit and with his word and with the gospel? Oh, you see the patient endurance of Christ. But there is a warning here, and it's a serious warning. And last thing, there's this incentive. To him that overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life. So much could be said here, this thing of the tree of life. It's probably mentioned in the Bible more than you realize. It's mentioned probably about eight times altogether. I think three times in the book of Proverbs. Mentioned twice in the book of Genesis. 
mentioned three times in the book of Revelation. What is this tree of life? Well, just very quickly, it's this. It's that which symbolizes eternal life. And what our Lord Jesus Christ is saying to us, listen, to him that overcomes, I will grant to you to the tree of life. It's a beautiful picture. What began in, in, in the garden of Genesis will, begin, will end in the paradise in the book of Revelation. It's a beautiful, beautiful book ends there. There's so much more we can say. I'm not going to get into it in any detail here. Because I want to spend some time on, on, this, on, this, on this exhortation that Christ gives to him that overcomes. Yes, incentive I will give to eat, but to him that overcomes. What is it to overcome? Well, this is a point of great emphasis in the book of Revelation. Every church is called to overcome. Called to be a victor, a conqueror. And aren't you reminded of what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, how that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us? That being in Christ, you are a conqueror? But it's going to look like something, isn't it? John tells us in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, that he that is born of God overcomes the world. By virtue of your faith in Christ and by virtue of regeneration, you have overcome this wicked world. And again, that regeneration, again, that's something that God has worked in you. And so regeneration, again, is the, is the, is the basis, the substance of overcoming the world. But secondly, your active exercise of faith is overcoming the world. Look there in Romans chapter 4. Abraham believed again, against hope believed. Abraham, again, being fully persuaded that what God had promised he was also able to perform. Your active exercise of faith in the day that you live, in the circumstances that you faith, face, this exercise of faith is overcoming the world. But there's a third overcoming that we see here, and that's returning to your first love. All the challenges against this first love that Christ notices and he sees when it diminishes, you're heeding and hearing the call to remember, repent, and do the first works. Your, again, awareness that God, that our Lord Jesus Christ has set this before you in a very clear way. And yet, by way of we see, by way of complementary passages in the scripture, we're dependent upon the Spirit of God who enlists all of our energies in these things. And so this is how the believer overcomes. So my brothers and sisters, the counsel of Christ to this church is that, is that we remember our first love, both in its initial phase and by way of its priority, that we repent of any loss of that love, and that we do those first works, love for Christ, love for one another, love for the lost. Oh, the great incentive here to eat of the tree of life well, the tree of life and the Lord's table are not one and the same. But can I, can I encourage you to think of what it will be like to eat of the tree of life in the future by inviting you to come to this table? To eat of that bread of life? To participate in this holy ordinance that Christ has given to his church? You see, these are the things that Christ sets before us. So there's so much that we can say by way of applications, and I've gone way over so much that we can say by way of applications. I would just remind you of this. See how Christ deals with his, church, with his church. He will commend. He will counsel. He will correct when necessary. But he will do it all in a way that brings glory to his name and brings about genuine, genuine overcoming in the life of his people. My brothers and sisters, I'm confident that I'm looking, to, looking at a group of overcomers here today. I'm confident of those of you who are going through diffi difficult times, 
but the exercise of faith, as you exercise your faith, you will see yourself to be overcoming all of these difficulties. Christ will sustain you in this moment, and you will overcome, and you will give glory to God. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and thou shalt glorify, and I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. The day of trouble is the day that we call upon our Lord Jesus Christ. So my brothers and sisters, hear this word, heed this word, and live by this word. In Jesus' name, amen.